Debussy's Pelias et Mélissande. Minute detail. That is what Debussy can do, tell the entire story in about 12 bars. Incredible. Luminosity and shadow. It's much less about big melodic lines. It's much more just about the quality of sound, which for all the world seems to be a quality of light at the same time. And the subtlety of human emotion. Is he the knight in shining armour or is he the catalyst for the catastrophe? Yes, taking advantage as well. Yeah, exactly. Pelias et Melisande is Debussy's only complete opera and with it he rightly earned his place as one of the most imaginative and pioneering composers of the early 20th century. I'm Katie Derham. Welcome to the Glyndebourne Podcast. A young woman sits by a spring in a forest, weeping. Her name is Melisande. Her hair is Rapunzel-like and flowing, and that is pretty much all we will ever know about her. Julian Johnson is Regis Professor of Music at Royal Holloway University. He says this lack of backstory is part of why Melisande is still a subject of endless debate. It's part of her character that she is from the very beginning until the end of the opera, kind of mysterious. Nobody knows where she comes from. What we do know is that she's taken back, as it were, to this strange, rather dreary, ancient kingdom of Allemande, where Golo is from, and she never really finds a home there. She never really fits there. She's never... Uh, able, really, to be herself, it seems. She's often very self-absorbed to the frustration of Golo. Uh, you ask her a question, she gives you a tangential answer or she doesn't answer it at all. And I think that ungraspable quality of her character is kind of key to the opera. And mostly, I think with the exception of Pelias eventually and Arkel, the old grandfather character, nobody really gets her. That dreary castle is the home of Prince Golo. After he finds Melisande in the forest, he marries her and takes her back with him. It's here that she will meet his brother, Pelias. In the third scene of the first act, Melisande and Genevieve, the mother of Golo and Pelias, are walking in the grounds of the castle. Melisande remarks that the gardens seem enshrouded in night with such forest all around the castle. Melisande is all about the light and clearly she longs for this space and light that she sees over the sea and Debussy has a way of evoking that in music which capturing as it were the, the brilliance but also the movement of light uh, using divided strings for example you know many parts all perhaps moving against each other a very 
particular bright use of the upper brass and the upper woodwind. The harp is quite prominent at key moments here. So just as contemporary painters were fascinated by how you make light appear on a canvas, by the way that you move the paint around, being less concerned with line and more with texture and, and, and colour. I think Debussy's attitude to the orchestra is exactly the same. Um, it's much less about big melodic lines or big dense textures with lots going on. And it's much more just about the quality of sound, which for all the world seems to be a quality of light at the same time. Best-selling author Kate Moss is inspired by her lifelong passion for Debussy's music. He appears as an off-stage character in her novel Sepulchre. For her, it's the interplay between light and dark that makes Pelias et Melisande such a truthful and humane opera. What is so different, I think, about Pelias is that we know that life is messy. And so, oddly, I would say that what had been missing from opera was the grey area. Yes, the blurred edges again. The blurred edges. Yeah. You know, it's always light and dark. You know, he did this, she did that, bam, it's all catastrophic, mm. that's the end of it. You know, opera for me, up until that point, and I am a big Wagner fan, and the overture to Parsifal will, you know, always be on my desert island disc, you know, but th th it's very binary. Whereas what Debussy did with Pelias was say, well, you know, life isn't quite so black and white and it doesn't have to be an opera either. And that's why, for me, it's such an important piece of work. Debussy was writing Pelias et Melisande at a time of extraordinary artistic experimentation at the end of the 19th century. In the 1880s, he began searching for the right libretto for an opera, but struggled. He didn't want it to be too dramatic or too operatic. When Debussy discovered the new symbolist plays of Maurice Martelink, he had found his libretto. Julian Johnson again. It's not very surprising that Debussy was drawn to Maeterlinck's drama in the 1890s because it was absolutely in line with, in tune with this move towards symbolism in the arts that most famously we associate with Stéphane Mallarmé. And it's interesting, the, the piece that we normally think of that links Debussy with Mallarmé is, of course, the prelude à l'après-midi d'un faune, which he wrote at the same time as he was writing this opera. So it completely overlaps. What unites them, I think, is this sense of evoking and suggesting something 
that cannot be spoken directly. What happens on stage is the everyday, people meet and say good morning. But the capacity of the music to evoke something that you cannot see, what people feel, what they might fear, all of that's in the music. Pelias et Mélisande premiered at the Opéra Comique in Paris on the 30th of April in 1902, with the Scottish soprano Mary Garden as Mélisande. It arrived at Glyndebourne in 1962, in the departure from the preference of Glyndebourne founder John Christie for the music of Mozart and Wagner. Julia Aries has been archiving the history of Glyndebourne for 20 years. So... I have the 1962 programme in front of me with its beautiful um, cover. And inside, we can see the cast list um, from that first production. So Mélisande was sung by the French woman Denise Duval, who was beautiful in the role. Um, and Pelias was Henri Gouy. Golor was Michel Roux. So it was a wonderfully French cast, which certainly helped. Although we also had um, Swedish, Dutch and English singers taking some of the other roles. Um, Vittorio Gui, the conductor who had known Debussy, was desperate to do this piece at Glyndebourne because he felt that it was the perfect house and he was right. The production itself was very, very well received by the critics. They loved the fact that it was uh, an opera which is suited to the intimacy of Glyndebourne's theatre, that the production was sensitive and restrained, and help, which helped to reveal every facet of the drama as it unfolded on stage. And there was almost a justice in some ways to French opera that, that 1962, the season opened with Debussy's Pelias and Melisande and finally French opera had a place on the Glyndebourne stage and it was a real special moment in time. When Genevieve leaves them alone, Pelias offers to take Melisande's hand down the steep steps. Only a few lines pass between them, but there's so much more that isn't said. And then he says something he says quite often during the opera, I may go away tomorrow. And she says simply, oh, why must you go? And that's the end of the libretto. It's the last thing that she says. And yet, so it's a relatively ordinary, everyday kind of exchange. But what happens in the orchestra is extraordinary. So on her very last word, the orchestra changes the harmony, which is like changing the lighting. So suddenly on that very last syllable, everything changes. And instead of resolving down to a kind of close as it should, it twists upwards, but very, very gently. And you just know... She's asked this as a question which is much more than what it says on the surface. You listen to the music and it says infinitely more. It's an amazing moment.
At the beginning of Act Two, Pelias and Melisande are walking in the castle grounds when they find a blind man's well. It's deeper even than Melisande's hair, and Pelias is scared for her as she leans further and further into the well. Melisande is playing with the wedding ring Golor gave her. She tosses it in the air. And the ring falls down the well. Novelist Kate Moss again. You feel the music is taking you down and down into the dark and the wet. And it's, it sums up the entire opera in a way. They are aware of what they feel for each other, but it is nonetheless innocent and pure. But the symbol of ownership, the ring, uh, that is also going to lead to the moment of violence between Pelias and her husband and actually the subsequent murder, everything is contained in that. As the ring goes from the glinting in the light down to the shadow of the well and then to the dank hell... for me, is one of the great pieces of it, because it's not even a theme, really. But actually, that is what Debussy can do, tell the entire story in about 12 bars. Incredible. The original staging at Glyndebourne in 1962 was a work of immense importance for the creative team. It was the first UK staging since 1930. Glyndebourne archivist Julia Aries again. So here we have a box of production photographs from 1962, um, which show beautifully Melisande with her long blonde wig and her gorgeous gown, which we now know from the costume Bible and from the original designs, was a wonderful yellow trimmed with gold. And her, her young Peleas in a wonderfully brocaded jacket with long medieval drooping sleeves playing together at the side of the well. There were lots of gauzes and drapes and very medieval-style costumes. It was all very ethereal and um, moody. Act three opens with a famous love scene in which Melisande is combing her impossibly long hair at her window. Pelias calls to her to lean out further so that he can kiss her hand before she goes away. As she does, her hair unfurls, enveloping him in what is ambiguously either a moment of pure eroticism or of complete innocence. Chevalier, 
it's a moment in which everything changes in the opera and the tone of the opera changes completely. People who don't like this opera, amazing, but there are a few, people who don't like this opera will say that the vocal style is often quite conversational. You don't get long, drawn-out lines like you might in Strauss or Puccini. But at this particular moment, his singing style changes completely. And instead of having this declamatory style, he becomes rhapsodic, and his lines are much longer, and the orchestra kind of billows underneath him. catches them. Outwardly, he writes it off as just a childish game and scolds them like children. But later in the opera, he warns Pelias off Melisande in stronger terms, suspecting there may be something between them. His jealousy and suspicion grows. It drives him to use his young son as a spy and, ultimately, to violence. Golo drags Melisande away by her hair on her knees, telling Melisande that her flesh disgusts him. We know, because we witness it, that her husband is violent. So she is in a domestically violent situation. So the question is... When we listen to it as an opera and the beauty of the opera, is she knowingly wanting to be a lover with Pelias? Or is she looking to be saved? Mm. Is she looking to be rescued? Does she even know? I, I still don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm on her side. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> you know. Um, but what was really going on between her and Pelias? Was Pelias really coming to say goodbye? Is he the knight in shining armour or is he the catalyst for the catastrophe? Yes, taking advantage as well. Yeah, exactly. Pelias and Melisande are alone in the grounds. It's late and Melisande is basking in the moonlight. Pelias begs her to step into the shadows with him. It's his last night before he has to leave. He asks her whether she knows why. They kiss. After four acts, their love is finally made explicit. While Golo watches on secretly. <laughs> Golo is so enraged that he kills his brother Peleas. As the curtain rises on Act 5, it's clear that Melisande has given birth to a daughter and is now dying. 
She is gradually slipping away. There's a wonderful moment where she asks for a window to be open. And of course that opening of the window opens out onto the light that is above the sea. And to, to be literal about it, you know, if there's anywhere that her soul is about to go, as it were, it's through that window into that light. In that way, I suppose, she, she escapes. On her deathbed, Golo continues to press her about the nature of her relationship with Peleas. He is obsessed with getting to the bottom of what has passed between Peleas and Melisande. And you hear over and over again in the French that he wants to know la vérité, la vérité. He wants to know the truth, and she doesn't know what he's asking. And eventually he said, well, did you love Pelias? And she said, of course I loved your brother Pelias, in this beautifully innocent way. Even at the end of the opera, he never gets it. He never understands how to listen to her. There are no overblown death throes in Debussy's subtly powerful final scene. The serving women of the castle, who form the only chorus that there is in this opera of just women, enter into the, into the chamber, but at the moment of her death, which is hardly marked in the music at all, um, it's almost impossible, as it were, to hear at the moment when she dies, the semicircle of the serving women, the chorus, fall to their knees knowing what's happened. The music you've been listening to in this Glyndebourne podcast is taken from the 1963 recording of Pelias et Melisande by Glyndebourne Productions Limited. Music is by kind permission of G Recordion Co. London Limited. Vittorio Gui conducted the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Pelias was sung by Hans Wilbring. Denise Duval was Melisande. Golo was sung by Michel Roux, with Anna Reynolds as Genevieve, Rus Huckman as Arkel, Rosine Bredi as Inuld. John Shirley Quirk in the role of the Doctor and the Glyndebourne Chorus. Thank you for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast with me, Katie Derham. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. It helps other people find and celebrate opera and Glyndebourne. <laughs>